Thank you, ladies. Thank you for the reminder. That's an appeal. That's an invitation. That's an invitation from the Lord Almighty, the creator of the heaven and, and the earth. He actually wants us to come away and spend some time with him today. He's created a, a, a sacred day, 24 hours. He's stretched out time so that you and I can enjoy that relationship with him. Have you been enjoying walking with Jesus? Yeah? You know, it's, it's actually really, it's really beautiful just to see these leaves and to realize that these are all representations of blessings that you're counting. Um, actually, if you'll indulge me for a second, I'd kind of like to read just a little bit. Is this going to cause some feedback? All right. So what are we thankful for today, guys? We're thankful for Jesus' love. Amen. Amen. We're thankful for church family. Amen. We're thankful for Vondalee. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. We're thankful for family and health. We're thankful for every member. We're thankful for forgiveness. We're thankful for some things that I can't read, but praise the Lord for that. Anyways, you get the idea. There are many blessings to count, many faces to look upon and to say, God has been gracious to me through him, through her. God has been good to me through this and through that. Even if it's been unpleasant, God has been good to me through that. God is good. There is always something to be thankful for today and, and every day. And, um, you know, as we get into our study today, I, I really pray that this would be our mindset, that this would be our frame of reference, that we would be giving God thanks. And just so that we understand, biblically speaking, and this isn't what our, our, our sermon is, is really about, but biblically speaking, the Hebrew word for thanks, it, it comes from the root word for hand. It, it's kind of strange. Hebrew has this weird way of of combining words that you don't really get what the connection is. But the Hebrew word for hand, as though when you give thanks, you're kind of extending the hand saying, thank you, you know? Uh, has anyone ever kind of let you into their lane when you're driving in the midst of traffic? And, oh, I need to get into that lane. And then when they open up for you, you just kind of, yeah? You raise the hand. You recognize that that was undeserved grace. That was <laughs> undeserved merit or undeserved favor, I should say. And so, if, if I didn't raise the hand, the, the person in the back would be like, raising their hand, right? <laughs> Anyways, you, you get the idea. And so, recognizing God's grace, we say, thank you, thank you. That, that's what the Hebrew idea is for, for giving thanks. We, we say, that was undeserved, thank you for that. And so, all of these blessings, they're blessings that you can count, not because you're worthy, but because God is just that good. God is just that good. Let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you that as we come apart, so to speak, in this sacred day, this sacred temple of time, Lord, we're wanting to come away with Jesus. We're wanting to hear a word from you today. And Lord, even, even in the midst of whatever it is that we might be going through, we are able to see your grace. And if we're not able to see it, God, then open our eyes to see it. Lord, we're asking that today, um, as, we, you know, as, we, as we reflect on how good you've been to us, um, Lord, I pray that you would inspire us and motivate us to live a life that pleases you. Amen. To truly, in everything, give you our best. And so as we study a little more about your message through the prophet Malachi, that I pray that our hearts would be soft and tender, 
that our lives would live according to your word. Lord, we pray for revival according to your word. We pray for a revival according to your spirit. And so please, pour out your Holy Spirit today. We pray in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. 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 Go with me to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 today. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament right before Matthew. Malachi chapter 3. And over the last few weeks, we've been going through uh, Malachi's message. We're realizing that Malachi is a message to the Old Testament remnants, okay? These were the people who had just come out of Babylon. Now they're resettling in the land. But even after they've seen God uh, graciously bless them, with a restored city, with restored temple, with restored walls of Jerusalem, even still, their spirituality is on cruise control. Their spirituality is on autopilot, and they're allowing themselves just to kind of go with the routine. And uh, as we found in chapter 1, we found that the people of God were giving God their leftovers, so to speak. They were giving God not their best, but just what was convenient. They were giving God even the things that didn't even belong to them. They were stealing in order to give God worship. And in chapter 2, we found that there were two, essentially two factors of infidelity. Two factors that, that really kind of uh, caused, or it was the undercurrent for this leftover worship. One, it was leadership, spiritual leadership that weren't walking the walk. And two, it was uh, marital infidelity. People were abandoning marriage as though it was something to throw away, as though it was something that was disposable. And really what this reflected was a, a misunderstanding of God's love toward us. And anytime we miss the big picture of how much God loves us, I guarantee you, you're going to give God less than the best. Did you hear that? Anytime we miss how much God loves us, we are going to give God something second rate. And this is what happened to the people of Malachi's day, it was a remnant that was in need of revival. And now here in chapter 3, God is going to say something to them. God is going to actually reveal to them what he himself plans to do in response to the remnant in this condition. Praise the Lord that God doesn't just leave them off the radar, right? God doesn't just cast them away. God is about to reveal what he's going to do and how he'll respond to the remnant in this condition. He even wants to instruct the remnant what they can do about it. Do you want to hear it? Let's go. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. And just so you know, uh, the, the way that we're going to proceed with our study, it's a little bit unorthodox, okay? So chapter 3, uh, so far chapter 1, chapter 2, we've just kind of been, you know, plowing through from beginning to end. Today what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at the book ends of the chapter first and work our way towards the middle. Okay, does that make sense? So if we stretched out chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to here, verse 17, or whatever it is, what is it, verse 18? If we stretched it out like a scroll here across the stage, we're going to start here at the beginning and compare it to the end. We're going to move a little bit more towards the middle and then compare that to the end, etc. Does that make sense? So we're working from the outside in, and we're going to find that the heart of the message is actually right in the middle. All right, so here we go. Malachi chapter 3. When you're there, say Amen. All right, now I'm going to turn you to Malachi chapter 2. <laughs> chapter 2, verse 17. The very last verse of the chapter. Chapter 2, verse 17. We actually didn't read this one last week because I really think that this kind of springs us or launches us into chapter 3. Notice in chapter 2, verse 17, it says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, 
in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is what? Good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. What? You hear what's going on? These people who are so far off the deep end of their spiritual compass, they're thinking that what's good is wrong, and what's wrong is good, and God delights in that. And at the end of the verse it says, or where is the God of, what does your Bible say? Justice. Where is the God of justice? That same word can be translated as where is the God of righteousness or where is the God of judgment? Here's what's going on. The people of Israel, they had become so used to their leftover worship. They had become so used to leaders not walking the walk, just talking the talk. They'd become so used to living immoral lives even in their marriages that they thought God doesn't even care. God could care less whether I live upright or not. He's not even going to hold me accountable. Where is that God of justice that you're talking? Do do you hear the mentality there? Where is the God of justice? And chapter 3, verse 1, God is going to tell you. Here's the God of judgment. (laughs) In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to where? His temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, what are the next three words? He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Where is the God of judgment? These people say who are kind of casting off restraint. They're like, ah, God doesn't even care. And God's response is, well, here he is. He's coming. He's coming. And this is, this, is, this is not a threat, this is a promise, okay? <laughs> that the God of judgment is going to judge those things that destroy us. Praise the Lord. Sometimes we don't even know how sick we are. Sometimes we don't even know how self-destructive we are. And so the God of judgment has to show up and say, let me judge this for you and discern because apparently you're not judging that. Does that make sense? You're not judging that. And so let me judge that for you. And so his promise is that he's coming, that there's a messenger who will prepare his way. And this is really kind of a foreshadowing of the arrival of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. Who is the messenger that prepared the way for Jesus? Does anybody know? John the Baptist, right? And this is going to be more fleshed out in Malachi chapter 4 that we study next week. But in a secondary application, Jesus is not just coming once as a baby, but he's coming again as a conquering king. And do you know that before he comes again, he's going to send a messenger in the spirit and power of Elijah? Those things we're going to talk about again uh, next week, Malachi chapter 4. But here's this promise. God is saying, hey, look, I am coming. I am around. I am the God of justice. You don't have to wonder where I am. I'm coming. I'm coming. And like I said, it's not a threat. It's a promise. It's a promise to not leave us in our leftover condition. Praise the Lord. According to verse 1, where does the Bible say, where is God coming to? To his temple. Did you catch that? Yeah. Excuse me, it says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Very interesting. The temple. 
It was modeled after the sanctuary that Moses was instructed to build. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God tells Moses, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The temple, the sanctuary, all its services were a revelation of how God, the holy God, could dwell with an unholy people. How does God do it? Well, he does it through a very intricate process of separating the supreme object of his love, sinners, from the supreme object of his hatred, sin. The sanctuary itself reveals how God performs the synendectomy. <laughs> All right? It's a delicate process. And God knows that he can't just do it at the snap of a finger. He, he needs to reveal how he carefully does this, and he reveals it through the sanctuary and all of its services. That's why when Jesus comes to his temple, he's coming to save. When Jesus comes to his temple, he's not just coming to pardon our sin in the past, but he's coming to deliver us from sin today and tomorrow. This is what the sanctuary reveals to us. By the way, this is why the sanctuary the thing that reveals God's salvation, it doesn't just stop with the altar in the outer court. Do you realize that the sanctuary, it's made up of three compartments, right? The altar in the outer court. Okay, this is a little bit of a history lesson now, okay? If you want, you can read about it in the, the, the book of Exodus and Leviticus, just how it's all mapped out. But here, the, the earthly sanctuary was made up of three compartments. One, the outer court, which is where the altar of burnt offering was given. This is where the lambs were sacrificed and blood was collected, things like that, okay? Then there was the holy place. There were three articles of furniture, pop quiz. Who knows what three articles of furniture were there? Candlestick, table of showbread, and altar of incense, okay? Uh, bread, altar of incense, light that was powered by oil, okay? All of these things. And then the most holy place, which is where the presence of God resided, this is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is where the Ten Commandments were housed, okay? These three compartments reveal God's process of salvation. God was not content with simply forgiving us of sin. God wanted to do something about that sin. Okay. This is actually a really big thing that maybe some of us take for granted because maybe we've heard it before, or maybe of us, some, some of us don't even know that God does more than just forgive us from sin. He actually delivers us from its power and its presence. That's why God is not content to just reveal to us his salvation with the outer court alone. He actually reveals how he delivers us from sin through the power of the bread of life, through the power of prayer and communing with him in heart-to-heart -heart prayer, through the power of sharing the glory of God as lights, candlesticks to the world, powered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then, through all of those things, we have the privilege of dwelling in his presence, of having the law, you know, the Ten Commandments, actually written and housed not just in a golden box, but written upon our hearts. Okay, this is, this is the process of salvation that's revealed in his sanctuary. And so when God says, hey, look, I'm coming, and I'm coming to my temple, I'm going to do a work that actually delivers not just pardon for sin, but delivers you from its penalty and its power in your life. This is Jesus coming to his temple. And in verse 2, in verse 2 it continues, 
There's, that, there's like almost like a question that is kind of, uh, uh, that rises from Malachi's heart. It says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Who, who can stand? It, it, it's actually, if you cross-reference it, if you're taking notes, Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, the last book of the New Testament, there's a question that resounds. It says, who can stand before the presence of the Lamb? And the answer to that question is the 144,000 who are sealed with the, living God, the seal of the living God. Here in, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 2, it says, who can stand when he appears? Who can stand, in other words, when Jesus comes to judgment, when Jesus comes into his most holy place ministry? Who can stand that? Who can endure that? For he is like a refiner's what? Fire. And like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. We'll get to these details in just a moment, but I want us to catch something. I want us to catch something. It's Mordecai. It's Mordecai? That's really insightful, and maybe we'll study that another time. Yeah? (laughs) Mordecai. Awesome. Gotta love it. Out of the mouth of babes. Yeah. All right. So where was I? Um... Who can endure? Right, okay. (laughs) Who can endure? Who can endure? Now, come with me to the end of the chapter. Come with me to the end of the chapter, because at the end of the chapter, this question is actually answered. At the end of the chapter, in this last section, verse 16, 17, 18, God is going to actually kind of give us an answer to this. Who can endure the refiner's fire? Notice in verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them, So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who do what? For those who fear the Lord. Those who meditate on his name. Now this isn't talking about fearing the Lord as in like knees shaking between, you know, uh, just kind of like, oh, who is this guy? No, no, no. This is talking about fearing God, fearing to hurt him, fearing to displease him, wanting to live with him in sight at all times, okay? That's what the the Hebrew word, by the way, for fear, it's related to the word to see. So when we fear the Lord, we see the Lord. He's always set before us that we would live our lives constantly in reference to him. And when God hears those who fear the Lord, when he's he's listening into their conversation, according to verse 16, the Lord listened and heard them, so a book of remembrance was written before him. He's chronicling their names. He's like, oh yeah, these guys, they fear me. They, They meditate on my name. And in verse 17, notice what God says over these people. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Oh, follow this, friends. Who can endure, verse 2 asks. Who can stand? Verse 16 and 17 tell you, those who fear the name of the Lord who meditate on his name, his character, his glory, who really esteem him, who look to him, who want to live in reference to him. And notice it says, they shall be mine. These are people that belong to God. These are people that he calls his special jewels. Beautiful. Do you realize that God wants to not just make you his own, he wants to make you a precious jewel? And it says, I will spare them as a man spares his own what? What? 
his own son. He treats you and I as though we were his very own child. This is the God who says, look, I'm coming to my temple, and who can endure that? Those that are mine. Those that are mine. Do you want to be his today? Amen. 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 So whatever this judgment is that that Jesus comes to his temple to perform, that he comes suddenly to his temple to perform, whatever that judgment is, the result, the result is that we'll belong to him as a precious treasure. Have you ever thought about praying for God to judge you? (laughs) If the result of the judgment is that you become his precious treasure, then why shouldn't we pray for that? You actually read some of the Psalms. For example, I think it's Psalm 7. David actually prays this prayer. Judge me, O Lord. What? David, what are you talking about? (laughs) Somewhere along the line, we have misunderstood what God's judgment is all about. God's judgment, he sits as a refiner. That means he's dealing with precious metals. And if he's the refiner, he wants to make it even more precious. When God comes to judge, he's coming to make you his own. Do we catch that today? I, I don't know. Maybe we've grown up in a, in a mentality where we've, we've understood this idea, these prophecies, like, uh, you know, the, the first angel's message, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment is, has come. And we think to ourselves, that is horrible news. How could that be horrible news? When in the previous verse, this is called the everlasting gospel, right? It's gospel news because when Jesus comes to judge, He's coming to make us his own. When Jesus comes to judge, he's coming to make this precious metal free from dross, free from the impurities, so that we could be his special jewels. That's beautiful to me. And so I hope that you understand, just here in Malachi, Malachi is really wanting the people of God to understand judgment in God's eyes is a saving and redeeming measure. Judgment in in God's eyes is God's way of saving. That's why Christ's goal in the judgment is so much different than than the goal of our court systems. (laughs) Our court system is you are, what is it? You are innocent until you are proven guilty. In other words, the court system is trying to prove us guilty. Have you ever thought about that? That's why we, we shudder about going before a judge because they're trying to find dirt. The accusers, the prosecutors are trying to find dirt. But check this out. The biblical picture of judgment is completely the opposite. When God comes to judge, he's not trying to prove you guilty. He's actually trying to remove the guilt. Hallelujah! Come on! Okay, I'm, just, I'm the only one that's getting inside. Here's the gospel of the judgment. Christ's primary goal in the judgment is not to condemn or destroy. Christ's primary goal in the judgment is to redeem and to save. Why else would there be a whole book in the Bible called Judges that talks about people who saved Israel? Why not call it saviors? Because by calling it judges, it's calling it saviors. Your judge is your savior. Write this one down, Isaiah 33, verse 22. Isaiah 33, verse 22. Actually, let's flip there. Okay, hold hold the finger here. Malachi chapter 3. Go to Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22. Oh, this is beautiful. All right. 
Isaiah 33, verse 22. I hope it's okay that we take a little extra time on this because, oh man, this is gospel truth. Here we go. Isaiah 33, verse 22. When you're there, say amen. Okay, Isaiah is in the Old Testament. A little bit more than halfway through the Bible. Isaiah 33, verse 22. Someone out here is wondering if they're going to be judged. And, and, and when, they, when they ask that question, they're like, oh, I don't want to come under the judgment. But what, what's going on? Judgment is God's salvation. Isaiah 33, verse 22. The Bible says, For the Lord is our, what? Judge. Uh-oh. Or is it? Good news. Watch out. The, for the Lord is our judge. For the Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Amen. Your judge is your savior. A lot of times we think of judgment as that which condemns, that which destroys, that which sentences and executes, uh, you know, severe punishments or whatever. If there's anything that this judge wants to destroy, it's that which destroys you and me. That's why he's coming to judge. If there's anything that God is going to consume, he's going to consume the things that get in the way of him and his kids. This is the judge that is coming to his temple. Praise Jesus. All right, going back to Malachi. Back to Malachi chapter 3. So Christ's primary goal in the judgment is not condemnation. That's why he's coming to his temple. He's coming as the high priest. In Malachi chapter 3, we've already read it. In verse 3, it says that he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Jesus as judge is a refiner. Jesus as judge actually plays with fire, okay? And he does it in a skillful way. Do you know what a refiner does with fire? When a refiner is smelting things, when he is, uh, you know, working with silver or gold, he puts it into the fire, not to just sadistically laugh over it. <laughs> no, when the refiner puts gold into the fire, what is his objective? To make it pure. Because as things melt, guess what happens? The impurities, what, what the Bible calls dross, those things rise to the top, and it can be removed more easily. And when the refiner is there, his intent is not to destroy the gold. His intent is to purify the gold. His intent is to purge the gold. And if you and I are that precious jewel, his intent is not to destroy us, but to purify us. Why? According to verse 3, it says at the very end of verse 3, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. This kind of connects this whole process to chapter 1, chapter 2. They've been giving God leftovers this whole time. And God is saying, no, 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 I want to get to the heart of things so that your external actions of, of worship, they're coming from the springs of a purified heart. How does, how does he do this? Like we said, this judge, this refiner, plays with fire. This judge actually purifies us by the fire and flames of affliction and trial. And this is where judgment sometimes pains us. <laughs> In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, you can write this one down. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, Peter recognizes this truth and he says, no, 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 
uh, when we're tried by affliction, when we're tried by these testing times, these challenges, these setbacks, these are not to destroy us, but it's to make this gold more, more precious. It's to make this gold come out so that we can reflect the glory and character of God. The fires of affliction that, that are controlled by the refiner, and maybe that's gospel truth number two, they're controlled by the refiner. Praise the Lord, okay? He, 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 knows, he knows what fires we're walking through, and he has power over that. This is, not, this is not something that is uh, un, um, unhandleable. I don't know if that's, that's where... Uh, this refiner knows how to deal with the fires that we're walking through. And what he does is he's, he's purifying us. He's purifying the heart motivations of his people. Okay, so that's verse 3. Go with me a little bit more towards the end of the chapter. Go to verse 13 and 14. Notice what the heart motivations of the people currently are. We're in Malachi chapter 3. Look at verse 13 and 14. If you're there, say amen. Okay. Notice what's going on in the heart of God's people as they're offering their offerings. It says, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, What? What have we spoken against you? You have said, It is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as, what is the next word in your Bible? As mourners before the Lord of hosts. Do you hear what's going on as they're coming to worship? They're saying, why are we doing this anyway? (laughs) They're saying, well, what's the point? I'm not getting anything out of it. Does that sound familiar? Why am I coming to worship? Why am I walking so mournfully before God? The only reason they're walking mournfully before God is because the joy of the Lord isn't their strength. They haven't experienced the joy of salvation, of being real before God and God actually accepting them for who they are. And these people, they're coming to worship not because God is worthy, but in order to get something from God. The fires of affliction are to test those heart motivations. If you were asked, why do you worship God? If you were asked, why do you even follow God? What response would you give? I love him. Praise the Lord. He loves me. What was that? Inner peace. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. If the people of, of Malachi's time were asked, why are you worshiping? Why are you bringing these offerings? Their, their simple response was, well, if I scratch his back, he'll scratch mine. Do you hear what's going on? But here's the thing. True worship, genuine worship, is not so that I can be blessed. It's because I have been blessed. True worship is always a response to who God is and what he's done. It's not a manipulation of God to earn chips from him. See, the trial and affliction that the refiner allows us to walk through, it actually purges us from this quid pro quo, this for that kind of mentality. It purges us. It causes us to find that the true value of religion is a relationship with the God who is faithful, not the rewards I hope to get out of it. Do you hear that? The true value of any religion, the true value of our walk with God is simply that. It's a walk with God. It's a relationship with Him, not the rewards we get out of it. And when that motivation is flip-flopped 
when that motivation is more about me than it is about him, the fires of affliction will purge us of that straight away. <laughs> That's why in verse 5, the, this refiner is, it says he comes near. Notice in verse 5, it says, And I will come near you for judgment. God, the refiner, this judge, he comes close to the fire. He's not keeping us at an arm's length. He's not casting us off in judgment. In judgment, he's actually coming closer to us. In, in affliction, he's actually coming closer to us than had we not had those flames in our lives at all. Is it possible that the flames of affliction actually draw God closer to us than had we not been walking through those challenges? And why would the refiner, uh, just kind of taking that metaphor, the only reason a refiner comes close to the fire is to see his reflection in the precious metal. When the refiner sees his own reflection, he knows it's ready. It's pure. It's purged. And so here, Jesus is coming near to the fire, waiting to see his own, his own reflection in the precious metal. In verse 6, this message continues, this message of judgment. He says, For I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. This is a precious assurance. A precious assurance for anyone who is walking through flames today. For anyone who is walking through fiery trials, you and I need to know God has not changed. God has not changed there are times where we walk through affliction and we think, God, where are you? And God is simply saying, I haven't left. <laughs> I have not changed. God, you said you loved me. I have not changed. When you're walking through the fires of affliction, God's assurance is, I do not change. And because I do not change, you are not consumed. My love endures, and it still endures, even if you're going through all of this, this fire. I'm still here, God says. Even though the pleasantness or prosperity of your circumstances may change, my heart toward you has not changed. I have loved you with an everlasting love. There's someone here today that is walking through fires right now. You're feeling it. The heat is on, and you've wondered where God is, and God is saying, I have not changed. I have not changed. Don't buy into the enemy's suggestion that this fire of affliction is evidence that God does not love you. Don't buy into that. God is saying, I do not change. I have loved you. Do you remember the very first words of this message in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2? God's assurance, God's assurance is saying, I have loved you. And here in chapter 3, verse 6, he's saying, I haven't changed. I haven't changed. I still love you. Maybe that's why Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, he can say, in everything, give thanks. <laughs> Maybe that's why James, in James chapter 1, verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. <laughs> Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and patience character. Wow. God is doing something. God is doing something. The, the very fact that you are experiencing that flame or that fire is evidence that the refiner is drawing near that you are precious and he wants to make you a special jewel. Throw that in the devil's face, yeah? Okay, what, what, what? I'm, I'm cast off, I'm abandoned. No, 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 I'm God's special jewel. 
I'm God's special jewel. And we haven't even gotten to the heart of this. Here it is. Ready? The refiner's appeal. Chapter 3, verse 7. Here it is. It says, Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Remember, God's saying, Hey, I haven't changed, but apparently these people have. You, you've gone away from them. And so, in verse 7, his appeal is simply this. Verse 7 says, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The refiner's ultimate appeal, his ultimate goal, would you please just return? (laughs) That's what the judge wants. The judge doesn't want to cast us off. The refiner doesn't want to cast us off. The refiner wants us to return. And then these people who still don't get it, they ask this question, in what way? In what way shall we return? And here it is, verse 8. It's almost like uh, Malachi throws this curveball. Like, where in the world did this come from, okay? It says in verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation, In verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this. The refiner who's testing the precious metal, he's saying, hey, you can test me. Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Where in the world did this come from? He says, bring all the tithes and offerings into the storehouse. And he says, when you do, the windows of heaven will be opened up. It's as if the, the, there's a curse that's being reversed, right? In verse 9, he, God is simply saying, hey guys, you've been cursed. You're living under the, the curses of blatant disobedience and rebellion against me. But I want to reverse that. The refiner wants to reverse that. Praise the Lord. He doesn't delight in our suffering. He wants to bless. He wants to purify. And this this curse, he says, can be reversed. How? By simply bringing all the tithes and all the offerings into the storehouse. Okay, so if you're like me, you're kind of asking this question, like, how in the world does that connect to this, like, refiner's fire thing, you know? Well, where in the world did this come from? And I want to answer that question. But first, let me just answer the simple question of what in the world is tithe and offering, Yeah? And for some of us, this may be review, but for some of us, this may be brand new, okay? Tithe and offering, what in the world is it? Tithe, it simply means a tenth, right? It simply means a tenth. The Hebrew word for tithe, it means one-tenth or ten percent. And according to Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, it says, all the tithe of the land is holy to the Lord. So whatever this tenth is, it's the tenth of our income, the tenth of our increase, it's holy to God. It belongs to God. And this is actually a reminder to the people, hey, all the stuff that you've got, it's not yours. (laughs) It's mine, and you're managing it for me. So the tithe, that when when the Old Testament Israelites, when they brought it to the temple, that was their storehouse, they brought it to the temple. When they brought it to the temple, according to Numbers chapter 18, it supplied the the sustenance of those who worked in the temple that is the sons of levi the priests that's numbers 18 verse 21 if you're if you're writing those things down 
It supplied the sustenance of the people. Why? Because Levi, the tribe of Levi, unlike the other 12 tribes in, in Israel, the tribe of Levi didn't have a land that was given to them. The tribe of Levi didn't have, um, what would you call it, an inheritance in the promised land. Their inheritance was doing ministry in the temple. So they didn't have land to work to grow crops and feed themselves. Instead, the tithe from the others would actually sustain them in providing services in the sanctuary. Does that make sense today? Yes or no? Yeah? Okay. Okay. So here's, here's in the New Testament, Paul kind of applies that, and he says, hey, uh, gospel workers ought to be fed from the gospel. And so that's, that's kind of the, the New Testament dynamic of it, where people bring their, the tithe of their income, the 10%, the first 10%, this is how we honor God in our first fruits, and it's brought to support gospel ministry. Now, offering, offering is a separate entity. I hope this is okay that we just kind of go through some of these basic details, yeah? <laughs> offering is something that you hear people call for every week. These are free will offerings. In the Old Testament, uh, when, the, when the people of Israel gathered for worship, they could bring not just their tithe or the first of their crops, but they could bring free will offerings to support the things that were going on amongst God's people. Particularly, the Old Testament examples were uh, rebuilding the temple or repairing the walls or things like that. And that's what the offerings were. They were free will expressions. Uh, let, me, let me say it articulately. This is how I wrote it down. They are free will expressions of gratitude. And the amount, unlike the tithe, it doesn't have a fixed formula. It doesn't have a number percentage or whatever. It doesn't have a 10%. Uh, according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 17, the offering is something that we give as the Lord has blessed us. That's the principle as the Lord has blessed us. And so, really, our offering, our free will offering, again, it's not out of compulsion, it's not because someone is twisting your arm, it's like, no, I see what God has done for me, and I want to thank him for that. It's an expression of gratitude. Does that make sense today, yes or no? Yeah? See the difference between tithe? That belongs to God, that's totally his, there's no ifs, ands, buts, no questions, it's 10%, it's fixed. And then there's offering that we give to God as an expression of, wow, this is what God has done. This is what God has done. Okay. So now the question is, how is that tithe, how is that tithe and how is that offering used? I, I want to clarify this because sometimes, um, <laughs> sometimes people misunderstand. Actually, I was, uh, <clears throat> I was doing a house visit and um, at this individual's home, uh, there was someone from a, another church, another church fellowship, another denomination that felt compelled to give to the Lord. It was really beautiful, actually. He says, hey, pastor, I, I remember meeting you, da, 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 all these kinds of things. And he says, hey, let, let me give you some tithe. Let me give you some tithe so that you could use it for your church. So I was like, wow. I didn't, you know, I didn't do an offering appeal. I didn't play any music or whatever. He just wanted to give. And so uh, I thought this was really beautiful. Very interestingly, he actually gave me, <clears throat> he gave me a check, and it had my name on it. It was paid to the order of Godfrey Miranda. Now, here's what I want to distinguish tithe is not paid to me. <laughs> Praise the Lord, okay? In the Seventh-day Adventist, Seventh Adventist church, tithe is given not to an individual, but to God's work across the globe. I want us to understand this because there are models of church in many Christian denominations that work on a congregational sort of framework. That is that all the money comes in and it stays right there. But that's not how tithe is used. In the Adventist church, 
tithe actually comes, like we collect that tithe, but we pass it on to the network of churches called our conference. And what that does is it supports gospel ministers, teachers, pastors, administrators. It supports them not just here at this church, but all across the world. Does that make sense? So what ends up happening is that the pastor of a five-member church is taken care of just as well as the pastor of a 5,000-member church. That the pastor who is overseeing churches, uh, you know, across the Indian Ocean or whatever, out here in the other hemisphere of the world, is taken care of in the same way as pastors in the Western Hemisphere. This is the beautiful thing about the Adventist church is that we're not focused on me, myself, and I, that we want to see God's work expand all across the globe, okay? And so this is how the Adventist church uses tithe to support gospel work wherever it can be found. Offerings, on the other hand, offerings are given towards specific ministries, specific expenses, okay? That's why you've got those little white envelopes in your pews, and you can designate what to tithe, you know, to support gospel ministers all across the world, or what to offerings, that which stays here, or that which is going to a specific fund, local faith, uh, conference faith advance, or whatever the case might be. Is everybody clear on that? Yes or no? We'll probably give another 15-minute presentation on that in about six months, okay? So, just, yeah. Anyways, wanted to make sure that that was clear because now we can actually ask, how in the world does bringing tithes and offerings cause us to return to God? Right? This is, this is the context, right? Malachi chapter 3, back to Malachi. We're, we're, we're seeing this. God appeals to them in verse 7, return to me. And they say, how can we return? And they say, return to me by bringing your tithes and your offerings to the storehouse. Does God need food? Does God need money? <laughs> why is this, why is bringing tithes and offerings the road to returning to the refiner? Maybe we'll say it like this. <clears throat> In Malachi's day, they were, apparently they were experiencing um, unfruitful harvests. Apparently they were experiencing uh, maybe a drought, famine, things like that. They, they were experiencing, why in verse 9, that's why in verse 9 it says, you are cursed with a curse. They're not feeling like they've got very much to give. Their crops are failing. And so you can imagine the hesitancy of the people of Malachi's day. I don't have very much to give, so why should I give anything? Has that ever maybe you've, you've felt that. Why should, I, why should I return tithe? I don't even have much in the first place. But for them to hold back their tithes and offerings or portions of it, according to these verses, it's, it's considered robbery. It's robbing God. And robbery is taking something that doesn't belong to you, right? It's a paradigm shift that the tithes and offerings helps to reinforce, and Malachi needed to remind the people, hey, look, your stuff is not your stuff. My stuff is not my stuff. All that I have is his. And so, faithfully returning tithes and offerings is an expression that I really believe that's true. That my stuff is not mine. That all I have really is his. Faithfully returning tithes and offerings, it says that's reality. And that's a reality that's so much different than this world perpetuates. It's a reality that is much different than this world and its values. It's a reality that makes us less grabby and more giving. 
And it's a practical demonstration of one, appreciation. Thank you, God, for the blessings you've given. But it's also a practical demonstration of two, anticipation. Thank you for the blessings you have yet to give. Did you catch that? When we give our tithes and offerings, we're saying, God, you are good. And we're also saying, God, you will be good. When you feel like you don't have very much to offer, don't rob God. We may not be able to give equal gifts, but we can give equal sacrifice. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so we give to God, not because I have to, but because God is that good. That's why he says, try me now. (laughs) Try me now. In verse 10, where was it? And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. The refiner wants us to test him. The refiner wants us to prove the genuineness of his trustworthiness. So how does this fit in the overall appeal to return to God? What's the connection? How does bringing tithes and offerings cause us to return to the refiner? Simply this. It's a practical way to recapture our hearts. It's a practical way to recapture our hearts. Let me explain it this way. According to, you know, verses 13 and 14, their hearts were far from God, you know? They're like, hey, what profit is there to serve? This is useless to serve God. I'm just mournfully walking this road of religiosity because I'm trying to get something out of it. No, no, no. Their hearts were far from God. We We can agree with that. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus gives us this this perspective. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We see the truth of that, right? You spend a lot of money and say, man, oh, praise the Lord. I'm able to to get around in some, some new wheels. I don't have to, you know, repair my car every other week. (laughs) I finally was able to purchase this car. And when you have that car, when you've spent a lot of money for it, you take care of that baby. Right? Right? Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will follow. There your heart will be also. When God says, hey, I want you guys to return to me. And he says, return by giving your tithes and offerings. He's saying, look, put your treasure with me so that your heart can be with me too. That's the road to returning to the refiner. Return to me. Return to me. How shall we return? By bringing all your tithes and offerings. Did you notice that word there in verse 8? Sorry, verse 9. Nope, verse 10. (laughs) Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Apparently they were giving some. They just weren't giving all. Yeah. (laughs) And so here, it's like they were giving some of their heart. They just weren't giving all of it. God is saying, put your treasure with me and your heart will be with me too. So what can we take away? Here's the road to returning to the refiner. How can we do this? How can we return to the refiner in order to give God our best? Number one, here it is. Give thanks even in your affliction. (laughs) Give thanks. You're being refined. Review your, your trying circumstances and recognize that, whoa, there's a refiner who's got the flame under control. He's drawing near to this fire, and he just wants to see his character. 
Give thanks that he is the unchanging one with an everlasting love, not wanting to consume us, but only to consume the things that hurt us. Give thanks that he's removing the dross, he's unearthing the selfish motives, he's restoring his character, and you and I, we can give thanks even in our affliction. Amen? That's practical takeaway number one. Give thanks, not just on Thanksgiving. Give thanks every day, even in your affliction. Practical takeaway number two, here it is. Be faithful in tithes and offerings. Be faithful. Put your treasure where your heart needs to be. Simple as that. Put your treasure where your heart needs to be. Maybe you need to do some review of your personal budget. (laughs) Maybe you need to pray about it with your household. Have a family meeting, family business meeting, so to speak. And just prayerfully ask, are we being faithful? And if we're not, why not? Let's put our treasure where our heart needs to be. Develop a giving plan. Ask yourself, okay, okay, this is, this is what tithe is, what it practically looks like. Make a plan. Make a plan for offering. Take a pledge card for the parking lot. You know, whatever. It, the, the point is this. Give to God your best. Give to God your best. Actually make a plan with much prayer and stick to it. Do it out of gratitude and appreciation, not out of compulsion, not out of resistance, pushing and crying with much weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not it. That's not it. God wants a cheerful giver. And so, as we want to return to the refiner, as we want to return to the God who is unchanging, let's give thanks, let's be faithful in our tithes and offerings. If that's your desire, just raise your hand to heaven and say, yes, Lord, I want to do that. I want to do that. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are good to us. Thank you that there is always something to thank you for. And Lord, as we... So you take Malachi's message to heart, I pray that you would really live it out in our lives. Lord, I pray for some of us who maybe, maybe, uh, you know, these are principles that we want to apply. These are principles that we want to live by, but we're living in households where there are principles on polar opposites, that there are values that are on the other side of the spectrum. I pray, God, that, there would, that you would bless those households with unity, with the desire to give you the best. Lord, I also just pray for our individual hearts. I pray for those who are specifically walking through fires of affliction and have no idea where the end is in sight. And I just pray, God, that you would give them the perspective of these promises that you do not change, that you have not left them to be consumed. Thank you, God that on the other side of these fires, we're going to be able to reveal your glory more beautifully, more powerfully, and that you will call us your special jewels. May we live to your honor and glory today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.